Hi guys, thanks for tuning in to episode 7 of the Wholesome Business Podcast. I'm really happy that we finally managed to arrange this with one of our friends, Nick Begley. He's a fascinating guy with an amazing breadth of experience in psychology and mindfulness, as well as technology and corporate business. Ed and I once again hosted the podcast in our state-of-the-art broom cupboard, which in case you're wondering is literally our office broom cupboard. And this time it was so full of stuff that we could hardly fit three chairs in there. And a box ended up falling on Nick's head partway through the podcast. Um, luckily, nobody was hurt. It was great fun. And Nick gave us some great ideas and insights into how technology can be used to improve our mental health and well-being, both in our personal lives and in our professional lives, and how this can benefit both the individual and the company that they work for. Um, and we also went off on a few other interesting tangents along the way. As always, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at Eat Whole Grain. So please do get in touch with us, share your ideas, um, let us know if you've got any ideas for guests that you'd like us to talk about. Um, and of course, share the podcast with anybody who you think might find it interesting. And you can also find us online at www.wholegraindigital.com. I hope you enjoy. Nick, I mean, we've known you for a few years and you've always been doing various things in meditation, um, originally in Headspace, and you always seem to be doing something really, really interesting. Um, <laughs> it seems to vary quite a lot over time, but always within the sort of meditation space. Yeah. So, um, psychology, yeah. yeah. Could you tell us sort of how you got into it? Because you're originally studying to be an actuary and then made quite a big shift. Yeah, no, probably, I mean, it started a number of years ago, so... Basically, I was must have been nineteen at university, so I was at UCL, and my girlfriend was really, really she was running really late, and I was waiting outside um, Waterstones Bookshop, and so I decided to go in and have a look at some books, browse through it, and I saw a book called Prat Farang, and Prat Farang means foreign monk in in Thai. Okay, it was only like I don't know, eighty pages long or something, and uh, she was really late, and so by the time she got there, I probably read about sixty pages of this book. And it just resonated with me so much because the whole purpose of their life was just to basically bring about happiness. Yeah. And they're saying that's really what all of us is kind of our innate nature. Everything we do, essentially, is to bring about happiness. Yeah. They kind of did it in a very, very systematic method and also looked at the fact that, to be honest, what's external to us has, very, well, has a much lesser impact in comparison to actually how our mind perceives the world. So there was a nice um, statement in there. I think it was something like, um, I'm going to get this wrong. <laughs> um, it's like if you want to... So if the whole world was basically covered in thorns, you could either try and leather the entirety of the world, so when you can walk you know, without having a pain in your feet, yeah. alternatively, you can actually put leather on the soles of your feet. And they'll play the exact same kind of idea to the mind. So, I mean, you can see a number of people who are very, very wealthy, they've got everything they could possibly want, but have got depression, you know, yeah. suicide and all these... So these things aren't necessarily the cause of happiness. You've got other people who've got very, very little, and yet they still to be, appear to be very happy as well. Um, and so a lot of it is actually the way we perceive the world. Um, so anyway, so I was just reading this book, and it massively resonated with me. And then I guess I started reading more about Eastern philosophy. And then when I went back to Brighton, we had a local Buddhist centre down there. And for that summer, I actually went down and meditated there, I don't know, probably a couple of hours a day. Yeah. And then gave up drinking for that summer. And still went out with all my mates and stuff. But it was, it was amazing. Like, I still felt... Um, just some of the meditations that you do, especially ones 
around kind of compassion and caring for others, they bring about some very, very strong pro-social kind of feelings and emotions. And so previously where you felt the need to kind of drink alcohol and things, it just disappeared. And so I was going out having great fun with all my mates, obviously taking the mickey out of me for meditating. So I'm like, what are you doing this weekend, Nick? Are you going to go and weave some baskets, go swim with the dolphins, <laughs> or uh, go meditating? And, um, but after all, I got used to that. And uh, yes, yeah, so, I mean, that was my first introduction to meditation, but I, mass- I found that it was massively, massively transformative. Um, yeah. And so then from there, I went to become an actuary. So my degree was actually in physics. So I studied physics UCL, finished there, was actually going to do a fourth year as a master's um, degree. But all my friends were going for jobs in the city, and I thought maybe I should just go for some interview experience. So I ended up just applying to a recruitment agent and uh, just to get some interviews. And the first interview I had basically just went very well. I had a second round interview, and they gave me the job on the spot. So within two or three weeks... I had a job at the world's largest actuarial um, firm. I thought, well, this was just too easy. <laughs> I should probably give it a go. So I never really meant to become an actuary. But then and the thing about becoming an actuary is that it takes seven years. So it's not really something you just think, well, I could give it a go, see how it goes. Cause three years so after in, you've done the three years degree, that's not actually the end of it. No, the three years is a physics degree. Oh, that's the three. Okay. And then you learn to become an actuary on the job. So you right, get one day off okay. a week at work. Yeah. Um, and then three years in, I was like, what am I <laughs> <laughs> We've got things collapsing around us. Box almost fell on my head there. But <laughs> there we are. Um, um, so, where was I? <laughs> yeah, so after three years, I kind of was getting a bit fed up of it, passing all the exams, but I decided to then go on a sabbatical. So I took six months off and travelled around to Southeast Asia, and I went to do, I taught six weeks in, I taught eight weeks in Thailand. I taught basically English at um, at a at a monastery school, so it was like full of monks at, at a school, and uh, did that, and then also somehow or other picked up a monk on the way who he was actually a Kima monk who was kind of stuck in Thailand right. and he wanted to go back to Cambodia and I said well I'm travelling now Southeast Asia so I'll you know just come with me and so me and this monk ended up travelling to Laos to Cambodia and all these kind of places which was actually amazing so I paid from everywhere but because you travel with a monk I didn't know this at the time everything's first class so no matter where you go, you like, you know, yeah, you're first in the queue on the plane, on the buses, you don't have to sit with the fish and the chickens, you sit up the front, you know, it's all this kind of stuff. So it actually turned out really well. Learned a lot from him because, well, he used to wake up every morning and drive me nuts at 4am to meditate and do all his chanting. And, and so uh, I think I wasn't enthusiastic to go with him. But I did that and then um, came back, worked in investment consulting rather than retirement did another four-year stint, qualified as an actuary, so finished that, and took part in a project called the Shamata Projects. This is the largest um, neuroscientific and psychological research study into meditation. So the University of California actually paid for us to go out to Colorado and meditate for three months for eight hours a day. And there were 70 of us in two groups. And basically they took a whole battery of tests, so you know, psychological tests and yeah. also physiological tests, looking at blood, looking at um, gene expression, a whole number of things, also doing EEG tests, all this kind of stuff. And their main question was, how is, can attention actually be trained and is it transferable? Um, yeah. What's, what's quite interesting is that the way the West look at the mind is typically from a third-person perspective. Yeah. And so you try and look at 
what are the kind of neural correlates in the brain which um, well which correlate with particular mental states. Now, in the East, they also have an understanding of the mind, but it's much more of a first person kind of. It's called phenomenological, like it's an experiencing of the mind, and although you don't have kind of have this third person consensus there is consensus among the meditators of what states they find. And so William James originally, he, he was always suggesting you should have both a first person and a third person perspective on the mind. Um, and so a lot of neuroscience nowadays, well not a lot of it, but more and more so, they're looking to meditators as people who have a very, very good understanding of what the first person perspective's like. And obviously, if you don't have that first person perspective, the third person is actually redundant, because you're always gonna have to ask someone, when you see these neural correlates, what is the emotion you're feeling? Yeah, you need to give it some context. Well, exactly. I mean, unless there's someone to report it, these things firing don't mean anything. You have to have an experience of it. But asking everyday people, they won't have that same nuanced attention and understanding or taxonomy of their emotional states, yeah. which their meditator would. So then they started to kind of combine this first-person, third-person perspective, which was one of the, basically what this, this scientific study was doing. But what they really wanted to know is, can you train attention... And then is it transferable to other things? It's all very well. People say you're navel-gazing and you can watch your breath for like eight hours a day. But what use is that? So they started to look at, can you transfer that to other tasks? And also, how does that impact your emotion regulation? And so that was the questions they're asking, and they found out it had a massive impact on both, both counts. So you can transfer your attention, and also you can learn to regulate your emotions. And from that, it also affects your gene expression and various things. Wow. Okay. Um, so anyway, we did that, then came back um, to England, decided that actually I wanted to help get mindfulness out there because it was massively transformative for me. And so went to, um, so did a couple of degrees, one in positive psychology, another one in cognitive and decision sciences, and specialised in the neuroscience of mindfulness and institute psychiatry. Um, and that's when I was approached by Headspace, funny enough, from a couple of different angles, from friends and the institute of psychiatry, saying, can you help write the science and meditation for some books and help get it out there? So there was the four of us in Headspace, helped set that up, and then basically that, that was phenomenally successful. And then after that, I decided to focus on actually how to improve well-being within organisations, um, which is where I kind of focus my work now. Yeah. I mean, how do you think Headspace has sort of changed <coughs> things? Because now, certainly sort of amongst people that I know, you know, if you mentioned Headspace, a lot of people that you'd never expect to have heard of it are aware of it. They might not, they might not have used it, but it's sort of on their radar. And I think if you go back a few years, you know, if you, if you <coughs> mentioned sort of meditation. It was it was a bit sort of airy fairy, you know, something that normal people don't do. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think they've really they've really done a lot to sort of take that mainstream. And now you've got other sort of competing services like Calm.com and yes. things like that. Yeah. Um, how do you feel that they've sort of achieved that? So it's really interesting. So um, when I started there, well, there's a few things. They kind of the exponential increase in meditation actually first started when the scientific research kicked off. So a guy called John Kabat-Zinn over in the States, he started looking into it to help people with generally chronic pain and fibromyalgia. Okay. More and more research started to happen, and that's when it really started to kick off. But then what Headspace did, and I didn't appreciate it at the time, because I came in as a science guy, and um, obviously we had particular budgets on what we could spend on what. And Rich, Rich's background, he's actually um, from the advertising industry. Rich is one of the co-founders of Headspace. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And uh, for him, he wanted to spend a lot on branding, on design, and all this kind of stuff. 
And so kind of my perspective, not knowing a lot about that, was like, you know, come on, the most important thing is actually to show this product works, first of all, let's do the scientific research. And, you know, he was more like, no, let's just make it feel right. Let's yeah. put the right colours, let's put the right tone of voice, let's do this and the other. And so I didn't actually appreciate the importance of branding until meeting Rich and seeing what they did. So it was really all about that feel. And you see it in the animation. So really the, an the animations are what made it so popular, first of all. So what happened, the animations basically, people love them, they can kind of really associate them with them, it felt nice. But then also the, the other big, big step actually was the TED Talk. So Andy did a TED Talk, right. and then he got a million hits on that, and that's what kicked it off the company. So it's, I feel actually, it's, first of all, Andy is a fantastic teacher. He's a lovely man. He embodies all the qualities which actually his spouse is. Um, Rich knows a lot about branding and design, and then we got a lucky kind of break with the TED Talk, and all of them together just, you know, kicked it off. Yeah. Cool. Um, and so now, so you worked with them. That must be a great experience. Yeah, it was um, and then you went off to set up your own business yeah. in the sort of meditation space. Yeah. And I think that's had a few sort of incarnations or yeah. taken a few turns along the way. Yeah. So how, how did that start and, and where, where's it taken you? So when you work with organisations, so well, there's a number of things. George McCarran, he's my co-founder, he focuses on the measurement kind of part of the thing. So actually measuring psychological states. And there's a a big issue generally in psychological research that it's unreliable for a number of reasons but one of them is there's a number of cognitive biases so if typically people would ask you how have you felt over the last week how have you felt over the last month how have you felt over the last year but depending on how you feel in that moment it massively biases how you said you feel right um, and not only that typically these questions are done either in a laboratory or if you're in a company done late at night before like the nine o'clock cutoff point for the next day it, or it could be even a seasonal bias, depending on if it's the accounting year end, or even like you know seasonal, literally like winter, summer, yeah. like. So often the results, the data isn't that accurate. So what George did, he created um, an app called Mappiness, which mapped the nation's happiness. So he had sixty-five thousand people basically filling in two very short surveys a day, um, and this short surveying technique is called experience sampling. So instead of asking people how have you felt over a kind of retrospective period. How do you feel right now in the moment? How yeah. happy are you? Who are you with? This kind of stuff. So it's done in an ecological setting in your normal kind of environment. Um, it also, it's not biased because you know how you feel in this moment. And then what starts to happen is the individual user themselves, they start to get data about themselves. Um, and so the users wanted to do it to understand about themselves. But what we soon found out, the main question of the study was to see whether or not living in natural environments being natural environments makes people happier and what they actually found was people are most happy in kind of wetland areas near estuaries okay. near the kind of near the sea with some kind of greenery as well yeah. next was green spaces and then lastly was cities cities people are about five percent less happy than people who live in kind of wetlands or, yeah. or the countryside um, but from this data we found out a whole load of other things it also asks you who you're with what activity you're doing you can look at days of the week and all this kind of stuff but there's just a wealth of data in there but one of his findings was that people are most unhappy at work, second only to being ill in bed. So out of 30 activities, this is where we spend also the majority of our lives. Yeah. And so this was kind of sad. But at the same time, I was working on the interventions and meditation side of things, and George was measuring people. He was like, yeah, we know you're miserable. But he doesn't have a, a yeah, yeah, exactly. he can offer them. Exactly. Yeah. So he was like, this would be fantastic. Ideally, if we can get together, 
you can provide the interventions, yeah. we do the measurement. And so you have this kind of nice virtuous circle where you measure, find issues, you intervene, and at the same time put interventions in place, and you can also measure to see if they're having an effect. Yeah. And organisations actually are very, they don't, to a certain extent, they have budgets to invest in these things, but generally, in comparison to the research out there, so looking at things like Harvard Business Review, various economic journals, they don't invest to the levels warranted by what the research suggests the benefits would be. Right. And the main reason is, is because no CFO is really going to open the purse strings unless he knows it's going to have an impact in their firm. So what we, what we are doing is basically bringing this measurement piece to actually show how it can impact the bottom line. So we have so now you kind of sample people. You ask people how do they feel. Say twice a day. We only do it for short periods actually for yeah. three to four weeks. Then it only cuts down to once a month. Uh, sorry, once a week for a couple of months. And there's another period. But um, what happens from that? You get a, a really kind of high quality data, a wealth of it, and you can start to correlate that with actually KPIs. So typically you do annual engagement surveys, and the most important asset in a company is generally its people. Yeah. And nowadays, forty percent of GDP actually comes from the knowledge economy. The most important asset in the knowledge economy is obviously mental capital, it's people's minds. But pe companies are only measuring their most important asset once a year. They've got one data point to measure their most important asset. And so it's no wonder they're not investing to levels they, they should be, because they can't actually analyse that in conjunction with these important variables. Yeah. Um, so we're kind of we're turning them on its head. Um, and so the app basically, it asks people how they, you learn about yourself, it's called MIAT, so it's MIAT, the company you work for. Mm -hmm. So it could be MIAT, Whole Grain Digital. And basically, the individual finds out about themselves. They'll find out their own kind of behavioural patterns, where they're happiest, with who, where they're most focused, what activities, what days of the week, how many steps, all these things. But it also shows you correlations between like your happiness and your productivity, all this stuff. And it kind of unlocks over time. So the more you fill it in, the more data you get about yourself. So the first step is finding these patterns. But in addition to that, it also asks you, how do you feel about the culture of your organisation? Because no man is an island, and the actual kind of environment and the culture make a big, big difference to the individual. So they'll also ask you, you know, a series of questions. Could be about ethics of the organisation. Do you ever, are you ever asked to do things you don't feel comfortable doing? Yeah. Um, you know, do you feel like you trust your manager? Um, various things from a, a number of different variables. And so from this perspective, the employer, they have a real-time dashboard understanding exactly what's happening in the organisation the individual can anonymously, it's all anonymous, can feed back to the organisation, but at the same time they start to understand better, more about themselves. Yeah, so is that anonymity, I assume, is really important because you want people to be honest and, and there's a lot of things, I guess, particularly in terms of the cultural aspects of the organisation where people might be scared to really say what they think 100%. if they knew that their managers were watching. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah massively important, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, so we aggregate the data up and we show that in the kind of dashboard, but only if there's more than 10 people in a specific kind of slice right so that yeah. you couldn't identify if only exactly. one person had filled yeah. it in you wouldn't you couldn't do that yeah. yeah yeah exactly okay that's good it creates a sort of safe environment for people to do it yeah yeah completely yeah which yeah. is massively important yeah. if you want to get <laughs> honest answers <laughs> yeah so how do you go about selling this to the sort of I mean I know that you've been working with PricewaterhouseCoopers and yeah. I think some other big companies yeah how how did you what's your approach to going and selling to big companies because it's quite I'm imagining it's not something that they're used to hearing people talking about meditation and asking them to spend money on it. Well, no, so this is the interesting part. So now we wouldn't... So the way it works, it's not just about meditation. So the actual... So we have these sprints and strolls. So if you can just... So for the first month, you'll be asked questions potentially daily. Yeah. It's up to you how often you want to answer them. And it only takes about 30 seconds to a minute to answer it. 
if the next two months you get asked once a week, let's say, or twice a week if you want to, then you've got your baseline, then the next quarter will then actually introduce a theme, it might be stress and mindfulness. Okay. And so in that first four weeks, now what we do is we start teaching people mindfulness digitally through the app. Yeah. They can start to see how is that kind of how is it changing from the baseline. Then the following quarter for that one month, we integrate things around sleep and activity and exercise. Then another one's about strengths and personality. So the my, we're not just doing mindfulness anymore. And yeah. I think for people to really engage with the mindfulness course, they have to be invested. It's like exercise, but it's harder. Like you, you need to kind of sit down. 15, 20 minutes a day, but do it regularly, like three or four times a week before you notice differences. Just like if you go down the gym, you don't really see change unless you go twice a week, three times a week. The same thing happens exactly with the mind. But the thing is, as we're pushing this out through an entire organization, we're really just giving them a taster and a teaser. Um, and so we, yeah, it's generally not specifically just about mindfulness. One module is, but the idea is you give them a taste to go into it and then potentially do a longer course, which actually has some live training components as well. Okay, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. So, um, how have you found? Do you get sort of user feedback on on how people have found that it influences things like their performance at work or their personal life? Or yeah, yeah, no, like? completely. And actually, sorry, I didn't, I didn't touch on actually how we set it in there. But um, so most organisations, to be honest, they want to have the data on how's the psychology and the culture of our organisation actually impacting our bottom line. I think a lot of people now they're understanding about well-being. Not only that, actually, the millennial generation, they they have a slightly different perspective on work. So it's not just, a lot of people don't just want to climb up the kind of, you know, associate, manager, senior manager, director, partner route. They actually want to have quality of life. Um, and people consider this actually when they choose their, their firm they want to work with. And so for them, th there's a number of different aspects. One is you get data to understand what's our culture like. Yeah. Two, how does it really impact the bottom line so we can actually prove to the kind of CFO and shareholders it's worth investing in. But then thirdly, a lot of organisations actually care about their employees, it seems. And it was really nice. So, <laughs> but you, like, you laugh, but in, in America, the, it seems in the UK, from what my experience so far, is that there does seem to be more of a genuine care for the well-being of their employees, but potentially less so in the States, and more scepticism right. yeah. from the employees. Um, but in, and, it, and it depends on the culture of the organisation, but... And a lot of HR managers, directors, and even CEOs, we they, they really actually care about the well-being of their employees, and so they want to have the best products for them. Yeah. And it's much easier to justify if you can actually show it makes a difference um, through the measurement piece. Yeah, yeah. And I guess presumably it helps with recruitment as well, if that is one tool of many that helps create a positive culture and helps improve staff yeah. retention and things like that. Oh, 100%. Um, and then word of mouth means that people sort of get a good reputation this is a company you might want to work for yeah no exactly yeah, yeah. like it costs 26 billion I think mental health problems at the moment for the UK economy a year just for the UK yeah yeah that's phenomenal it's, I know it's ridiculous yeah yeah yeah, yeah. okay um, so I was going to ask a question I can't remember what it was <laughs> you did ask another one one behind I can't remember yeah oh, what's the feedback what's the feedback yeah what's the feedback oh it's really sweet actually so like it's very, well, it, it depends. So we've got both interventions to help people when they're feeling stressed. They say they feel anxious for a number. Yeah. We'll actually kind of teach them, you know, give them mindfulness interventions or whatever it might be. Um, one of them actually we teach is just a very simple breathing exercise. So you kind of do diaphragmatic breathing. And actually when you breathe in, your, your heart rate speeds up. And when you breathe out, it slows down. And when you're calm, 
um, basically you have nice even in-breaths and out-breaths. And what's yeah. that doing is it kind of nicely regulating your nervous system. So when you breathe in, it activates the fight and flight part of your nervous system, getting you ready for action. When you breathe out, it activates the rest and digest, kind of slowing you down and relaxing you. And so when you're relaxed, you have this nice kind of even activation of the two branches of your nervous system, yeah. which keeps you kind of able to respond to the environment appropriately. When you get stressed, though, it becomes very shallow. Your breathing becomes quite shallow. Your heart rate variability reduces. Instead of it nicely increasing and reducing, it actually kind of just becomes more monotonous or quite jagged. And this has been actually linked to working memory, like how many things you can hold in your mind at one instance, and also your ability to empathise with others and actually socialise. But um, So the mind and the body are literally linked through the breath, but just as when you're stressed, your, your breathing and your body changes, by changing the way you breathe, you can actually change your mind. And so it's a very simple exercise. You teach people how to do diaphragmatic breathing at an appropriate rate to increase their heart rate variability. Um, but one of the things which is different running a digital business rather than doing live is that often you don't get interaction with individuals. So you don't get that nice kind of instant reward. Yeah. But instead we get emails, which, which are lovely. And um, so one guy, who's actually on the course, it wasn't him, but he was giving feedback about his daughter. And so his daughter suffers from ADHD and really just finds it very difficult to regulate her emotions. And he said over like five or six years, I just showed her the breathing guide. She followed it, and I've never seen her calm down so quickly within really? two or three minutes. Yeah, completely. And you're just like, and it's just silly little stories like yeah. that. Um, and then other people, there's a sweet one about um, the measurement, because obviously it asks you how you're feeling, etc. And to a certain extent, you could think it would be quite annoying. But people like it because they start to find out about themselves. But um, one woman was like, I really love it. Like, it's kind of just like, Someone asking how your day is. You know, like when you get home, you like someone caring for you. Um, another guy, he was, uh, so he was, he's married with two kids, and he basically found out that he's happiest when he's alone late at night when the kids have gone to bed and not with his wife. <laughs> and he said, I've realised I should probably be a bear. I just want to go into hibernation and get out of it. But it's quite, it is quite interesting. You, just, you learn things about yourself, which you don't realise. And, and actually, we got asked for mappiness. Could we take off? Could we put a lock on the graphs which show you who you're happiest with? So your spouse or your partner can't quite see. Yeah. dangerous. Yeah, it's it's sort of it's fantastic on the one hand because you learn so much about yourself. Yeah, you yeah, may learn things you don't, you didn't want to know. Exactly, it's a lie yeah. machine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but, but there's a the saying that you're happiest at one moment in a particular context. Maybe doesn't capture the fact that your the, the other activities you do as an investment for happiness over a longer period no, so the fact that you're investing in your life in having yeah. children and so on is, is, is going to bring a lot more happiness over a long term even if at a moment when they're crying and yeah. so on you might be happier if they weren't there so you have to look at the research more I mean it was, there's this great book by Daniel Gilbert called Stumbling on Happiness yeah. and effectively he tries to expose three myths like about happiness I think one does money make you happy two does I think marriage make you happy three do kids make you happy and what he always says there is like the most reliable finding in psychology is kids make you unhappy. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true, but it's exactly what you say. Generally, they only look at hedonic happiness. So how happy do you feel in the moment is exactly what you say. Um, and that's also generally what we ask in our app as well. The satisfaction of life, you have to, I think you have to follow that over a much longer period of time to see how it changes. And people also get a lot happier when their kids leave home. 
Um, <laughs> for the research shows as well. And it, actually, so we had, um, I don't know, we had a, a whole number, we had a lot of media coverage last week because George published another um, paper from Mappiness looking at happiness and work, etc. And uh, I might get this wrong, <laughs> but roughly, so we were looking at how happy people are at work compared to when they're at home. People who are married are generally, it might just be the relative levels, but they're generally, the difference between being happy at home and at work, they're generally happier at home than they are at work. However... This is if they're married. This is if they're married yeah. than people who are single. Yeah. So you could say people that are single like being at work because they can socialise and flirt, or it could just be that married people like to come home to their, their loved ones. But then the other thing is we found is that if you compare the people who also have children, the married ones who have children happier at work. <laughs> <laughs> this is completely taken a tangent. I didn't mean to be talking about this. Um, Find that nobody has this has children. <laughs> but 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 it's it's completely true. I mean, it's a massive investment having children, and the, it is for the long term. And it's probably much more about satisfaction in life and achievement yeah. rather than feeling happiness in the moment. And we do a number of things in life which don't make us happy in the moment, so we can achieve a better goal in the future. And so we aren't addressing that, and we're not suggesting that children necessarily, <laughs> you know, in their, yeah, the short term pain for long term gain. Potentially. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, do you think as time goes on, as you build up more data, that you'll actually be able to sort of find more correlations between sort of different types of people? Because obviously we're talking now you yeah. know, just about children or marriage or whatever. Yeah. It's quite generic across the population. But yeah. potentially, I guess, if you had enough data, you could drill down into certain personality types. So if you're this type of person, then actually maybe children would make you happier. But if you're this type of person, don't do it. Because... It's you know, it, so we've literally we've put the personality profiling in the app now, so it tells you what your personality types like in the five different main kind of categories called the big five, and I think that will massively change things. Yeah, and it'd be really interesting to see you know where people are happiest. Are they actually in social situations? Probably extroverts will be, introverts won't be. Yeah, but then you can also see how these personality types are different across departments, and how these personality types could be better in one oh, department within the organisation, the organisation yeah, compared yeah. to one department to another department. Um, and it could also help with recruitment to a certain extent, or actually seeing how is it best to put person to personality types together to make a more cohesive and productive team as well. So these are all things actually we're looking at. Yeah, it's a really good point of personality. So what are your what are your big five personality? Is this related to Myers Briggs or is it different? No, no. So the main so the main five personality traits from research, which suggests that they're kind of long term and relatively stable, are. It's ocean, so openness to experience, uh, conscientiousness, yeah. extroversion, stroke introversion, um, agreeableness, and neuroticism. And so, to be honest, pretty much the top four have pros and cons. Have pros and cons, but it's quite hard. The neuroticism, generally, you don't really want to be too high on, and that's a hard one. But I, I, yeah, I don't know enough about this research to be honest. But generally. I don't know what the benefits are of being neurotic. I guess it would be massively beneficial in times where we were threatened, but in modern day environments, we're very rarely threatened, and instead our mind projects into all sorts of situations which aren't going to cause problems. So generally, it can cause more of a problem for us. But yeah, so these five personality types, you can see where you rank. Also, four hundred thousand people have done them across the nation, so wow. it shows where you are relative to everyone else. And it's funny when I when my chart unlocked finally after like a month. 
it was really nice. So I was literally bang on the exact same average of neuroticism for the rest of the country. <laughs> so it was kind of like, it just got like a nice relief. I'm just averagely neurotic. Yeah. <laughs> it just is mental as everyone else. <laughs> De- developers have a, have a quote which is, blessed are the pessimists for they make backups. Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so there must be a lot of, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's true. And I guess it depends on the type of job. And, you know, if yeah. you're in a job where Health you're safety. managing risks, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. then actually that might be a really, really positive thing. Yeah, completely. Yeah. yeah. I think it's mainly the reason why I haven't really thought about it so much from that perspective is generally in psychology, high neuroticism is linked with anxiety and depression. Yeah. And so they generally don't promote the good uses of neuroticism. Yeah. But I'm sure there's plenty of them. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, um, so how's it how's it work in practice? So you've got this not just the app, but obviously there's obviously there's some software behind it that yeah. aggregates everything. Um, do you sell it to specific companies, or is it an app that you can like go on um, iTunes and download? How yeah. how does it work? No, so basically, um, an organisation will come to us, or will go go to an organisation, and we'll roll it out to to them. So generally, we actually bespoke it for them so for, it'll be like me at GlaxoSmithKline or something yeah. like that um, and then we give them individuals all codes randomly generated we never know who anyone is and they log on and then they get access to it okay. um, and that's basically the way it works and then that works on their on their phone and their computer exactly so it works on iPhone and Android at the moment we're also making a web based version okay. in case organisations need it but pretty much it's about 90% of the population have them especially these companies we generally work for work with yeah um so that's the main way and i'm guessing because you're trying to get real-time data about what you're feeling right now then it makes a lot of sense because it's always with them yeah and ecologically valid so there are people out there who are you know sales and they're going up and down the country we know actually how they feel being in i was going to say the car but hopefully they'll stop and (laughs) pull over before answering it so in the neighbor in the train on the train on the train (laughs) um but yes you actually find out in the environment that's the advantage of mobile and then also you have the interventions right there when you need them. If you're feeling stressed, there's interventions in there to help you. Or if you okay, that's nice. There's yeah. tips in there as well. If you've got to give you like a performance feedback meeting or something like that, there'll be little tips that you can refer to before the meeting. And so it's really to help you at work become well. Firstly, you're looking at well-being, also more productive, and help you feedback to the organisation about how you feel about the culture. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So there's sort of benefits all around for the individual yeah. and for the organisation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. What scale of organisations do you work with? What's the sort of so generally it'll be the smallest is basically a thousand, um, but really it'll be kind of averaging about five thousand. Yeah. 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 Okay. Maybe we won't be getting it this. Time. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you, you do a special go. micro version. You of it. go. <laughs> the problem is it's quite hard if you've got six of you in all. Yeah, exactly. Ed, that one was you. <laughs> <laughs> anonymous feedback <laughs> <laughs> that's really weird this is this guy just says his boss is amazing all the time <laughs> <laughs> Tom <laughs> delete the data <laughs> yeah. yeah no that's a good point though actually that I guess there's a sort of minimum organisation size not just commercially for you but yeah. in terms of being able to get I mean, there is I mean to be honest though, you could still so a lot of psychological studies I mean they have like 30 to 50 people in it's not to say it's not useful. It all depends on the anonymity, and, and some organisations really depends on the culture. Like you guys, you can, you probably wouldn't care. 
and you can you can also put it in different ways. So the the level of um, so when you sign on, it does ask you demographic questions like what department are you in, rough age categories like just you know, eighteen to twenty five, twenty five to forty four, forty four plus. Yeah. Um, but you can take all those out. So and we tr- depending on the organisation, we take out any kind of free form text. So you can't say, you know, Tom is a pain in the backside or anything like that. Yeah. So you can't. Um, but yeah, you could easily have thirty to fifty people doing it, and you get some really interesting results. Yeah, and as a user yourself, it's interesting. Full stop. But for the organisation, yeah, they want to have a high level of data. I know you said that the app gives people advice on things they can do to sort of manage yeah. their happiness and stress and so on. Yeah, is there the same for the employers that sort of once you've got the aggregated data that says, look, as an employer, here's some things you could do to make your people happier or help them be more productive. Completely. Yes. Yeah. So I mean. A, a number of the we are generally focusing on more the digital aspects of it and helping yeah. the individual and then places like PwC the consulting firms they generally go in at the higher level and look yeah. at these kind of change management programs but a lot of them are now actually developing well-being consulting divisions and so the idea is we partner with them to provide the data and they can kind of do the bigger piece they can like interpret that data and then advise yeah. on exactly how I mean, it should be we, in, we generally do the analysis and interpret it and then they yeah. can go in and advise on the culture change depending on what we've we've shown okay yeah, yeah that's really nice yeah. Right. so what's on the what's on the radar sort of going forward <coughs> um, well the main thing is I guess we we're developing these programs to help the individual so we've developed the kind of mindfulness and stress one yeah we're just working on the sleep and exercise one and the next one's the strengths component. So you find out what are your strengths at work and have. So that that's I mean that's the main things we're focusing on. And then potentially we might launch actually so the the products within the app um, that help people we could launch those B two C. So in a way it works like quite a nice testing ground because you have thousands of people who are actually using the app seeing if they like it or not. Yeah. And when it's ready we can launch it B two C. But we just need to be careful that we're not trying to do too many things at once. Yeah. Definitely. So so the main thing is we want to focus on kind of the workplace well being and. Um, cultural assessment things like that yeah. yeah fantastic have you got a website where people can go and look up yeah sure um, it's www.psyt.co.uk so PSYT stands for psychological technologies um, and but we recently realised it might need to have a bit of a rebrand so people often spell psychological wrongs so they get the S and the Y the wrong way around and that's not too much of a problem unless you shorten it oh, to PSYT. It. So I went, I went into a company the other day, and they're like, Nick Begley from uh, from 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 Pissed. <laughs> and I was like, Well, God, there's one way to improve your your happiness and well-being, but no. So we're we're, we're reconsidering. But at the moment, it's yeah, site. So PSYT. <laughs> UK. Yeah, but if you'd like to say so yeah, yeah, if you'd like to find out more information, then please do email us. Cool. Yeah. Thanks very much. Great. Thanks, Thanks Tom. Thanks, Ed.